Welcome to Connecting with Coincidence with psychiatrist Bernard David Beitman, MD. Dr. Beitman is the founder of the Coincidence Project. The project encourages people like you to tell each other coincidence stories. To learn more about Dr. Beitman's work, put Connecting with Coincidence in your web browser. You'll find his book, his Psychology Today blog, and the interviews from this podcast. And now your host, Bernard Beitman, MD. Welcome to Connecting with Coincidence. Uh, I am Bernard Beitman. I'm a psychiatrist. Uh, I study meaningful coincidences. My book called Meaningful Coincidences, How Synchronicity and Serendipity Happen, uh, is available at a link for those of you on YouTube below. And uh, we're talking about something that uh, psychiatry doesn't address quite now, uh, but we got a problem here on earth, ladies and gentlemen, uh, and it tends to be denied. People don't want to pay attention to it, a lot of different ways of avoiding it. And we are here to say the evidence is really strong. We are in the midst of the sixth mass extinction of life on our planet. A mass extinction is a short period of geological time in which a high percentage of biodiversity, distinct species, bacteria, fungi, plants, mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, fish, invertebrates, and vertebrates like us die out. And this definition, it's important to note that in geological time, a short period of time can be a thousands, thousands or even millions of years. The planet has experienced five previous mass extinctions, the last one occurring uh, six, 65.5 million years ago, which wiped out the dinosaurs, as everybody kind of remembers. Experts now believe we are in the midst of the sixth mass extinction, and unlike previous mass extinctions caused by natural phenomena, this sixth one is driven by us, by human activity. Primarily, the, they're not limited to the unsustainable use of land, water, and energy use, and the resulting climate change. We have two very smart guys here who are coming at this question in different ways. And uh, this is the first time they're ever talking with each other, but they got their hearts in common and their minds are really good, as many of you know who know each one of these. First is Chris Bache, I'll introduce, and then Dan Siegel. Chris is a professor emeritus in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at Youngstown State University, where he taught for 33 years. Key thing about Chris, besides the living classroom, was how, where I got introduced to him and, and the connections between minds of the students and his. Very remarkable, that one. Uh, and also, Chris has the distinction of taking, has taken LSD, I think, 73 times and under controlled conditions, high doses and explored, not explored consciousness. And he's come away with some ideas about how to mitigate or what's going to happen with uh, this mass extinction we are now facing. Dan Siegel is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine and founding director and founding the co-director of the Mindfulness Awareness Research Center at UCLA. He is executive director of the Mindsight Institute, which focuses on the development of Mindsight, teaches insight, empathy, and integration. And his latest book uh, just came out this month, Intraconnected, 
It's just about how this whole thing we are in is interconnected, including you and I and me and them and you, what we are, they together kind of thing. We are in this, all of us. And because each of these men come from somewhat different perspectives, but again, for me, their hearts and mind have some overlap. I've asked them to join me with a discussion about their views about what is coming for humanity and what we might be able to do about that. So we'll start off with each of each of them saying something about an, their answer to this question, and then the dialogue will begin between the two of them. So Chris, let's start with you, and then we'll go to Dan. Well, I was hoping we were going to start with Dan first. We can start with Dan first. <laughs> okay. Okay. Dan, How you're about on. It, Dan? You're on. Uh, okay, well, whatever. I'm I'm happy to go with how whatever sequence, um, which probably relates in some ways to uh, part of what I'll talk about. But you know, my background is uh, trained as a scientist, and then as a physician, and then as a mental health practitioner, uh, as a psychiatrist, um, and then working as a researcher in the area of relationships and the development of the self and then becoming more an educator, really teaching people in different realms, the, the work of mental health, of education, of parenting, of uh, policy and government, organizational functioning, things like that. Uh, and then I worked uh, starting around 30 years ago to bring different sciences together into one framework that E.O. Wilson later, would, the term he used, we would apply to that called consilience. Uh, finding the common ground. And so initially it was all the different scientific disciplines, everything from math and physics up to, you know, sociology and anthropology and everything in between. But then it opened up uh, this field of interpersonal neurobiology to invite all ways of knowing. So religious studies, spiritual practices, contemplative practices, indigenous knowledge, uh, looking at poetry, at music, at art, dance, um, so, you know, any pursuit of exploration of truth um, is invited into the conversation. And, you know, we now have 80 textbooks in the Norton series that, that I founded. And um, the, the focus is on um, reality, but one aspect of reality we look at is the human mind. And we see the mind as broader than the brain. So unlike how Bernie, you and I were, trained uh, in psychiatry and in medicine since the time of Hippocrates 2,500 years ago, where the mind was thought of as a synonym basically for brain activity. And William James, the grandfather of modern psychology, kind of reaffirmed that in 1890. Um, in interpersonal neurobiology, we say, well, that's true, but not the whole story. That the brain is really important, but it's actually broader than the brain, this thing called the mind. And in fact, it's bigger than the, the body. So then in these last 30 years, there's been a fascinating journey to look at what um, the mind is from the perspective of what the proposal is, is that it's an emergent property of energy flow that is arising um, both within the individual and in the relationality of the individual with you know other people and with nature so people on the planet and in that sense uh the mind has features such as subjective experience it has consciousness 
It has uh, information processing. But a fourth facet of the mind is the emergent property that's been assessed by the mathematics of complex systems um, studied in the 1980s, so pretty recently. Um, it's the emergent property, meaning the interaction of elements of a system give rise to something larger than the elements themselves. Um, so we see all these properties as emergent, but one of them, this fourth property, is the self-organizing emergent property of a complex system. And we see it as the system being embodied and relational energy flow. And this self-organizing process uh, optimizes its, uh, its unfolding through a process of differentiating and linking. And when optimal self-organization happens, this what we'll call integration, this balance of differentiation linkage, it leads to a kind of flow that has five qualities that feel uh, with the texture of harmony. And those are flexibility, F, adaptability, A, coherence, which is holding together well over time, C, being energized with a sense of vitality, E, and stable, meaning reliable. So this faces flow is a way you would describe basically optimal self-organization. And the proposal from 30 years ago was that that was the basis of well-being and that when there's deviation from integration, this integrative self-organizing process toward harmony, you get to either chaos or rigidity. So in terms of the question of uh, human life and individual's life, you can look at, for example, attachment relationships and see that when they're integrative, um, the integrated sharing, the honoring of differences and promoting of compassionate linkages within a parent-child relationship actually is a relational flow of energy and information that is integrated, that stimulates the growth of integration in the child's nervous system. And so in the textbook, The Developing Mind, I wrote now in its third edition, you know, there's repeated support in the empirical scientific literature that integration is the basis of well-being. Uh, Smith and colleagues in 2015 uh, showed that every measure of well-being you could find is predicted by basically how interconnected something called the connectome is. Um, and then in the similar vein, in psychiatric disorders, anyone with a mental suffering uh, is, can be revealed as chaos or rigidity. And every study ever done of the brains of individuals with psychiatric disorders have impaired integration. So that's, that's interesting. And then positive interventions like uh, compassion training and mindfulness training, those lead to increased growth in integration in the brain in, in the very ways that studies, for example, of trauma show that uh, integration is impaired in, in children who are abused or neglected. So all that being said, integration then is seen as the, the base of well-being. So in terms of this question of what's happening on the planet, the many pandemics we face, I mean, one is the pandemic of loss of biodiversity known as this, this mass extinction, um, but other pandemics include racism and social injustice, the COVID-19 virus even. Um, you can look at issues of polarization and misinformation, the pandemic of loneliness in modern culture, um, and you know the addiction we have to screens, and also just climate, the climate disaster. All of those are examples of chaos and rigidity, and all of those I'll have you consider are either worsened by or even caused by 
and here's the proposal for our discussion, that the, the way the self is constructed by the human mind, because of the vulnerabilities of the human brain, um, we create in modern culture for a drive to certainty, what we're going to name as the solo self, a view of this center of experience as existing only inside the individual. And whether that individual is by themselves or in individuals like them, so it's like a plural solo self, mm -hmm. um, you can basically see that the heart of these pandemics, um, including extinction, you know, might be this solo self. And if that's true, as you point out, you know, this condition of the extinction looks like it's due to what the human species is doing. So the proposal in the book Interconnected, um, and I can show you the, the subtitle so you can kind of read it for yourself. You know, it's interconnected, but it's the idea of an identity as we, me plus we, as the integration of self, identity, and belonging. So the idea there is that you can find a way to see how the self develops in the individual and in modern culture. And that's what I do in the book through a lifespan examination of how self defined as you know a center of experience that includes subjective experience perspective and agency you can remember that with the acronym spa that this really scientific view of how the self develops as separate in modern culture fits in fact with what the invitation is from contemplative practices from thousands of years and indigenous wisdom from thousands of years so that here on this unceded land of the Tongva and the chumash in southern california where i am you know, the teachings were always about humans who were part of nature. But in modern culture, there's a drive to go from that verb-like fluid intraconnected, meaning we're connected within a whole, not just interconnected, where I'm connected to you, and that's the inter, the between. So that's where the, the word intraconnected is useful. We speak from the subjective experience, perspective, and agency of the whole, W-H-O-L-E, the whole of, of reality. And then in doing that, then what you see is indigenous teachings have invited this, contemplative practices have invited it. Um, and, and this discussion in the book is really just saying, can science join with those ancient invitations to see how the human mind's drive for certainty makes us view identity as an entity, a noun-like thing, rather than embracing uncertainty and opening to the verb-like reality of a more fluid identity and a belonging that is universal. And then what the hope is, and this is, I think, a realistic idealism in the sense that it's an optimistic view, yes, but it says humanity can, in fact, construct a self that is interconnected as we, and that can lead to actions for the greater good that are as if you had stubbed your own toe of your body, you take care of your toe, we would see the whole living world as who we are. So that's, that's in a nutshell, that's the notion, and that's how it fits in with this discussion. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Chris, <clears throat> comments, questions, and, and you? Man, that really was beautiful. I mean, that was, was beautifully summarized. And I just really love the unfolding of layers and layers and layers of your research and the way you harness so many people's research to and bring that into into focus. And uh, I'm sitting here uh, without 
any of the scientific background, difference, and get that in a minute, but in total agreement with what you're saying, just being over and over from my side of experience, everything you're saying makes perfectly good sense. The balance of integration of individual and larger fields within which we are contextualized, um, the ways in which we push against the limits at those different times and where we're being pushed now. Uh, I find it fascinating. I'm, I feel so completely aligned with what you're saying. And yet I come to that with, with a different, with a different story coming to it. Uh, a not, not primarily a theory based story or a theory heavy story or research story, but an ex purely an experiential journey. You know, that my psychedelic journey is purely experiential so that it, in different ways, I experience the rupturing of that core self that you talk about, and then the unfolding into a larger dynamic field consciousness, repeatedly, systematically, and then experiencing that field consciousness itself uh, dissolve, like the small collective self dissolved into yet another deeper level of field consciousness where uh, I so often wish that I, I that I had a PhD in physics and, and astrology, uh, as astronomy, to better understand, to uh, assimilate many of the things that I was shown and taken into. But it was just a, an educated layman's dissolving into, the, my phenomenological sense was, dissolving into fields of consciousness within fields of consciousness and being uh, acquiring insights or being given teachings about how those fields self-organize, how they work. I mean, the living class and classroom, uh, Bernie, you mentioned that that book, which was basically my attempt to understand the fields of consciousness that were connecting my students and my courses and me as there is kind of the spark plug within it and the ways in which my spiritual journey was impacting them through these mysterious channels of intercommunication that the field of consciousness is, that entire book was downloaded in 10 minutes in one session. I had been pondering the riddle for a long time, but it just came through clear in 10 minutes in one session and took years, of course, to, un to open it up and to do the research for it. Uh, and yet out of such a different different itinerary. I mean, I'm, I've been a professor of religious studies. I teach intro world religion courses, Eastern religions, Buddhism, psych of religion, transpersonal studies, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Outside of this modest academic frame, the experiential journey that I undertook, starting in 79, going to 99, would lead me to such experiences that are in so much in harmony with what Dan, with what you're describing, Dan, the, your way of understanding the, the, the larger patterns of organization that come up from underneath. I don't know that I have much to offer in the way of ameliorating this, this uh, extinction crisis that we've entered. I have from these experiences a certain historical framework that has that I use that has been given to me to understand what's happening a certain uh, conviction 
that we do make it through this crisis, that it, it doesn't end up becoming an extinction event, that we do make it through this crisis. And again, I, I offer that purely on an experiential basis, not on an academic basis, not on a scientific basis, but simply because in these deep states of consciousness, time can be penetrated. Transtemporal states of consciousness emerge in all the contemplative and spiritual traditions, and they can be harnessed in a way and penetrated in sustained psychedelic practice. So that part of my story is having experienced the crisis, the death and rebirth crisis of humanity from the future, not from the present going forward, but that, but also simultaneously from the future as something that has already happened. And that doesn't make sense, of course, within linear time, but within psychedelic worlds, that becomes possible. Uh, it so. definitely becomes possible and it's understandable. And the, the fluidity of time is becoming a, mm. a, com, a kind of a common discussion thing about uh, precognition is uh, one way to get into it. Dan, you were going to say something, I think. Well, I mean, no, I think it's beautiful, Chris. Thank you. And Bernie, thanks for having us on. You're welcome. Um, you know, to have this discussion. I, you know, there's so much um, richness in what you're talking about, Chris, and also um, in in doing this consilience uh, strategy that is where you really have an open mind about realizing there are many ways of knowing. Mm-hmm you know, so that the teachings from indigenous cultures, some of whom use plant medicines, you know, um, to open their consciousness for thousands of years, you know, have insights into the way systems function Mm -hmm. that uh, on one level sees the patterns and patterns of the patterns, you know, um, that Gregory Bateson would talk about and in looking at these thousands of year old tr- traditions, one thing that's fascinating mm-hmm. is from independent cultures that never communicate with each other, they yeah. came up with the same conclusions. Yeah. Uh, so that's just fascinating. The, the yeah. second thing is that you have contemplative practices, also thousands of years old, that in their own independent ways have come up with the same exact conclusions, the systems yeah. nature of our deep intra, I would call it intraconnected nature. Yeah. And um, so then you have to ask from a scientific point of view where you're always challenging your assumptions and challenging your hypotheses and doubting everything, you know, so it can sort of drive you a little <laughs> mad, but it's a good practice. And Adam Grant has a great book called Think Again about yeah. inviting you how to do that. But in science, we do that. And so from a scientific point of view, we would say that, wow, you know, indigenous wisdom is very much consilient with systems science Mm -hmm. and contemplative practices, very much consilient with system science. But then you realize that in much of what we do in modern culture and modern education, there's linear thinking about A leads to B leads to C you focus deeply on the details and some of that is incredibly useful. Like there's a virus killing people. Let's look at its particular molecules. Let's make an antibody and let's make it so we can have RNA that matches it in some way. And let's make a vaccine 
So now, okay, we have a vaccination based on RNA that we discovered because we were linear thinkers. So we want we need to embrace linear thinking. However, you know, in, in there is another way to think in systems terms. And, you know, this practice that I, that, that called the wheel of awareness, where you take the concept of integration and take the, the consilient concept that consciousness is needed for change. And then you bring those two consilient notions, integration is well-being, consciousness needed for change, and then you integrate consciousness. So I did this with my patients, then I did it for my students, then they were doing it with their patients. People started getting better. So I started doing the workshops before the viral pandemic hit. You know, my assistant counted this up. I did this with 50,000 people in person, oh, 50,000. 50, and I would get the responses. And you know what? When they were in the, basically you distinguish, you differentiate the hub of this metaphoric wheel as pure awareness, as the knowing of consciousness. Like if I say hello, you have both the hello and the knowing I said hello. So we put the knowing in the hub. We put the, the known of, in this case, sound of hello on the rim. And anyway, people do the practice. And you can do it from my website for free and yeah. um and so when, when we do this, when people bend the spoke of attention that they're moving around the rim as part of the practice into the hub, the common statements are, oh my God, I'm connected in a way I've never felt connected. My sense of a separate self dissolves. Time disappears. Mm. You know, love is there. God, I'm with the universe. Yeah. The, there's just this eternity and infinity you know this kind of thing over and over and over again even people you might say well it's a selected group of fifty thousand people who wanted to hear you selected i've group. had people <laughs> dragged there who didn't even want to be there or people in i've done it at parliaments you know where people did not want to be at this workshop and they were forced by their government to do it or their spouses brought them and they had the same experience they could be never having meditated before or running monasteries and they have the same experience mm -hmm. so what what you'll see in this book called Aware or this book called Mind or this book Interconnected is a question. Why is it on the rim? People feel locked into time, like a thought comes and goes or a memory is of a particular time in, a, in your life. But in the hub, it's timeless. So I did a deep search. I happened to be teaching with about 150 physicists at this meeting for a week. So I asked them, you know, what's what's energy, of course, because I'm fascinated with that. But what's time? And, you know, this is a controversial thing to say. Anything in science is controversial. You can say A and someone will say, no, it's B. And you, someone says, no, it's C. So you have to be ready for that. But for some of the physicists, just to quote some of them, there are two realms. And this was on the cover of Scientific American in, in July of 2018, the month before my book Aware came out. And I was so relieved because I thought people are going to think I'm nuts because Aware was all about these two realms. But the fact is, according to these physicists that I was with and subsequently reading a lot about that view and Scientific American certainly said it, in the large object world that Newton studied 350 years ago, macro states, large objects, there's something called the second law of thermodynamics. And that law says that as things unfold, they tend to fall into entropy, fall toward randomness. They fall apart. Mm -hmm. Well, that law only applies, according to these physicists, 
to the Newtonian macrostate world. A hundred years ago, the um, capacity and technology to study small things like electrons and photons led to the realization that the microstate realm didn't have that property of the second law of thermodynamics. And it's that awareness that things are moving with what's called an arrow of time, we probably name as time. So it has a feeling of linearity to in the Newtonian macrostate realm. But just like you can walk on land and has certain properties, you can jump into the water and you swim and it's different properties. That's a different realm. One reality, two realms, water and land. The same thing is true, physicists tell us, that there is a microstate realm where because the second law of thermodynamics doesn't apply, there is no error of time and there is no need in the equations that are super accurate about probability in the microstate realm. There's no need for a T variable. You don't have a time variable. It's timeless. Mm -hmm. So I went to the physicist and I said, if I draw it out like this, does this work? They go, that's what it would be if you drew it out. They hadn't drawn it out, but I drew it out. So I said, okay, well, then the mind matches onto this for these 50,000 you know, people that did it and those that responded. It seems to match where pure awareness, you're dropping into the quantum realm mm -hmm. where it's timeless. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, it's, you know, whether you talk about being able to go to the past, future or present, it becomes meaningless and self and other starts to shift because the experience in the quantum realm is verb-like unfoldings that are massively connected to one another. The Nobel Prize was just given in 2022 for entanglement being proven, meaning it's non-locality, that in the quantum realm, yeah. you know, there's there's uh, the, the, the experience in the Newtonian realm of separation in time and space doesn't exist there. Things are massively connected, yeah. especially across space, which doesn't have... Uh, doesn't impede relational connections. So I say all that because, you know, I've been writing about this. I've had neuroscientists chase me down hallways after a lecture I give saying, stop talking like that. Stop talking like that. I said, well, what? Stop talking like what? They said, why would you talk about quantum physics and the mind? I said, well, if the mind is an emergent property of energy and the physicists that study energy more than anyone else in the world tell us there are two realms, then I'm just saying it's a possibility mm -hmm. that these realms explain things like psychedelic use, yeah. that you drop out of the Newtonian thing. So when people heard this, they had me go to Newton's house in England, where the original apple tree is there. And we did the wheel of awareness around the apple tree. They made a documentary film of it. It's hilarious. But we paid our homage to Newton because I say to people, look, when you leave this workshop, get in your Newtonian body get in your Newtonian car. When you see a red light, press on the Newtonian brakes and stop your car in time. Because if you don't, you will become one with everything in the intersection. So there's a, right, there's a relativistic world where you're in a body and there's the universal as contemplative teachers like Thich Nhat Hanh would say. Yeah. So it, this just is a scientific adding to the discussion. Yeah. It doesn't take the place of to say, there are these two realms and listen, when people do the Wheel of Awareness and are given the mystical experiences scale, they get the same ratings as if they were on psilocybin. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay. <laughs> Dan, I love hearing you riff, man. I mean, that's just beautiful. Just everything you're, you're doing and putting together is, is just beautiful. Rift is right. That's a good <laughs> word for it. And, uh, he, just, he, just, he just needs a little music, which his son could provide. And that he's on the right. AlexSiegel.com yeah, came out with an album yesterday. I looked. Oh, really? Is that, <laughs> yeah. His son's a musician. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it uh, down to like uh, somewhere in that traffic jam at the red light uh, about to step on the brake um, and bring us to Chris's classroom where I've really first got introduced to Chris and try there to talk about intra-connection and experiences Chris had in that classroom, which was my introduction to how uh, it, another introduction, how it's happening right now, not just between two people or not a psychedelic out into the mystery, but Chris would be somehow all doing his own riffing about something as a, as teacher, as teacher, and people would come up to him. The students would come up to him afterwards and say, you have just answered a problem that I have been dealing with psychologically. Mm-hmm. And how that began to be what I thought now is what you're talking about, about intra connection, that it's one, it's one, we are, there, it's one mind of some kind in that classroom, something in your terms, quantum begins to happen yeah. where Chris is intuitively subconsciously coming up with something students need without knowing that he's doing it. Yeah. I, uh, it's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons I'm so comfortable with what you're saying, Dan, because it, it's so coherent with what my experience has been in the classroom, an understanding of, uh, a growing understanding of the porosity of mind, of the, um, the feel nature of our individual consciousness, the feel nature of the, of, of the collective consciousness, the way that individuals, when they come together and focus their intention, they create a field, and that that classes develop fields over over decades. They get stronger and stronger. The more morphogenetic fields, the more students study this stuff around this particular teacher. This field gets stronger and. Uh, it became what happened for me is completely against my will and without my guidance. I, I started uh, filling in blanks in my lectures, just opportunities to explain some principle I was explaining with examples that just came out of my imagination. And students started come up, coming up to me and they said, this is exactly what happened to me this week, or this is exactly what happened to my mother. And this kept happening over and over. I thought, well, first I thought, oh, okay, chance, you know, okay. But it kept happening so much. And then over the course of time, as my spiritual practice deepened, which happened to be a psychedelic practice, but it's irrelevant that it's psychedelics. You know, it's really about spiritual practice. As my spiritual practice deepened, this, this access to my student's mind deepened and began to zero in, it seemed, on places where they were hurt or where they were wounded or where they were held in block until the next stage of their life. And, and working together or just being in the classroom with me while I was opening up to these very intense, very large very pure states of awareness. It just began to 
cascade around me in, in my classroom. And so I developed what I call, and I know it's just, just metaphor, I think talk about the atomistic, the Newtonian approach to teaching and the atomistic, which really is about individual cells communicating with individual cells transmitting across the distance versus what I call uh, the quantum teaching, teaching within the reality of fields, teaching with an awareness that my mind has an active influence on in the minds of my students before the class even begins to meet and taking responsibility for this mind to mind field effect, especially when you're dealing with a mind which is carrying the kind of energy that starts to flow in you from doing very intense spiritual practice, in my case, a psychedelic practice. So I developed, and, and I really, um, Juanita Brown's work in cafe conversations were very helpful to me to how to catalyze and how to harness this collective energy that is in the room and how to harness it in conversations and how to distill it in, in written form. Uh, yeah, I mean, to me, the, and in the living classroom, I don't talk about psychedelics at all. The, the backstory is I was doing this psychedelic practice in private. It began to impact my students. This is how I worked it all out. Uh, and one third of the book are student essays. It's things that they, they shared with me. Um, and I didn't want psychedelics to get in the way of, you know, grammar school teachers, high school teachers, college teachers. It's, an, it's about the nature of consciousness. It's about the nature of mind. It's about, as you say, Dan, a quantum understanding of mind, a quantum envisioning of the human potential. And it doesn't negate at all the atomic truth, does it? You know, the, the reality of individual mind. I know things that they don't. They want things that I know in the exchange of stuff. Uh, what I what I hear from what you're mm -hmm. saying, Chris, in the classroom, and I'm wondering about this with Dan, uh, and I get this experience at dance, where it, it appears that uh, your consciousness, Chris, and certainly Dan, your consciousness when you're with a patient, because I know that as well, you begin to form a little unit of togetherness that ha begins to be interconnected uh, that we we share some responsibility each of us who have some awareness of the awareness of being in this group mind with people mm -hmm. and that what our thoughts do and our emotions do and what our other things that we not, might not be so conscious of can do is influence that field. So there's a responsibility involved in our own thinking about what's going on here and perhaps what we want to have happen. What do you think about that one? Yeah, that's so beautiful. And, you know, <clears throat> Chris, it's, uh, it's great to hear this, you know, uh, it, it, some people would use the phrase, relational sensing or relational fields and with uh, Metabol and Peter Sange uh, and the group from MIT, you know, we're trying to figure out how to study those things in a classroom. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we talk about generative social fields that, that uh, and we've picked out several teachers that seem to create exactly what you're talking about in a classroom. We've then brought them together and then we ask them very directly, what are you doing? Because everyone realizes when they walk in that room, they can feel it. Yeah. And the teachers say the same thing. They have no idea. <laughs> they, they just do it. <laughs> so we've, we're making films of them. 
and then we're going to study the films because they can't articulate it. Yeah, break and, it down. You know, so so you know when when Michael Faraday came up with electromagnetic fields that you could not see with your eyes, people thought he was nuts, right? Yeah. But now all of our electronics are based on these invisible fields. Yeah. And my dear friend John O'Donohue, you know, we used to teach together a lot, and he would call himself a mystic and the people who came to study with him you know the mystics so i said john what's a mystic he said it's someone who believes in the reality of the invisible yeah. you know and it's a beautiful way of describing it it really because it wasn't my background he was a you know catholic priest and a mystic and a poet and a philosopher but uh it wasn't my background and he didn't have a background in science but it really teaching with him over all those years really changed me because I realized the true scientific stance is to say you cannot see visibly everything that is real. Mm -hmm. So even with the system stuff at MIT, you know, we're trying to say, well, what are relational fields? You know, is it just the feeling you get as an individual from the way other individuals are reacting? Or is there an actual field? We don't have an answer to that. But I think the, the, um, experiences are fascinating and i was recently on a trip in the grand canyon and you know you go down the canyon and you're with rocks that were formed you know 1.8 billion years ago yeah. so you get a whole different sense of you know the term geological time mm -hmm. um, but with the humans that were on the trip you know some were saying you know how could it happen um that i get a communication from a relative like that's 10,000 miles away Someone's sick, someone had an accident, someone's dying, whatever. And I know it. And then I find out later, I knew it exactly when it was happening. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, no one knows why, but that kind of very specific thing yeah. might be explained by entanglement, this idea of yes. non-locality, that if yeah. your minds are in a relationship with another person's mind, basically, if that's really a process of energy flow, and since energy has these this quantum property that's now been proven with the Nobel Prize, you know, that non-locality, that is entanglement, exists where Newtonian spatial separation doesn't really change the relationality of something. Yeah. So it's not like what Einstein was worried that it was spooky action at a distance, he called it. But it isn't that, it isn't that something's flowing from here to there so yeah. fast, it's faster than the speed of light. It's that there is no such thing as spatial separation. So... Yeah. That's been proven now, and it like in a linear Newtonian way, you go, that's not possible, it's not possible. Well, we have to drop out of the that way of limited thinking. So then, then when you see, and, and I think Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind on Psychedelics, you know, the very last paragraph, he says, no one really knows how these work, but maybe it has something to do with that quantum stuff, you know? <laughs> so I wrote to him and I said, well, here's an entire book on that quantum stuff, you know, uh, the book of a, called Aware. Um, and, you know, there's a beautiful book called You Matter More Than You Think, you know, the quantum approach to social change. Mm -hmm. And very carefully, and this was a Nobel Prize winner who did this, very carefully, she, um, uh, she really, oh, yeah. it's Karen, Karen O'Brien is the author, you know, she very carefully says, this may not be true, but it might be true. Let's apply this, the, the findings in quantum physics to social change. Mm -hmm. And it relates to everything we're talking about in the sixth extinction. And what it does is it allows us, you know, and when I was around Newton's 
apple tree, you, you could feel it. It allows us to honor linear thinking in the macro state world and realize, you know, stop the car at a red light and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, what it does is it gives us a pathway, as Joanna Macy says, you know, in, in she uses the term the great turning, meaning let's get away from the great unraveling of the sixth extinction and mm -hmm. let's turn the way humanity is. So when she read the book Interconnected, she was saying, you know, this is the evolution and the revolution we need. And she had always written about, we need a quantum change in consciousness. Now, what does that mean? I think that means the linear solo self has had its day. It's created business as usual, which means, you know, if I'm in a body and this is all it is, I better get as many toys as possible. I better make as much money as possible. But then when I get my toys and get my money, I realize I don't really feel much meaning or happiness or anything. So I better get more toys, more money. And now if I can build a factory, I don't care the pollution it's going to create because I'm going to make so much stuff. You're going to want my stuff because I'm put out ads telling you, you really need my stuff. You buy my stuff. I get your money. You get the stuff and it isn't enough for you. You need to buy more stuff. So I produce more stuff, et cetera. So let's call that business as usual. <laughs> and so we're destroying the planet with that because the fundamental notion of modern culture in that view is the solo self the self only exists in your body and this separation leads to so much unconscious yeah. angst and and yeah. despair that it's driven to a materialistic acquisition approach to meaning in life which yeah. is totally unsatisfying and becomes a kind of an addiction to things that completely make you feel unsatisfied but you keep that path so yeah. The notion that we could actually have this quantum change, yeah. quantum would mean yeah a big change, but literally from a scientific point of view, it means getting out of the Newtonian illusion of a separate self, which unfortunately in modern culture we're going to name could be actually a lethal lie. Mm. So this becomes more than, oh, Chris, your explorations mm. of you know, what matters in your own LSD journeys, or for Michael Pollan, who was new to it, you know, to say, look, all these things basically get you in touch with love. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the most common things people say in the hub of the wheel. So I was teaching in a parliament once, and they were having all sorts of tension. So they had me do a day long workshop with the parliamentarians. And, you know, we did the wheel of awareness. And during the break, um, everyone's having snacks. And one of the parliamentarians comes over and she, he goes, Dan, you know, I didn't share during the sharing time. I said, yeah, I noticed. He goes, do you want to know why I didn't share? Mm -hmm. I said, sure. Why didn't you share? He goes, do you know that part of the wheel practice when you bend the spoke around into the hub? I said, yeah, I, I know that part. And he goes, and then he slows down. His eyes get filled with tears. And he goes, I have never felt so much love before in my life i've never felt so connected to to everyone and everything mm -hmm. there's this silence mm -hmm. and i said so you didn't want to share that and he goes oh no 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 no." he goes if i said love they and he points over to his parliamentarian colleagues he said they would think i was weak mm -hmm. so there's silence we're just kind of staring at each other his eyes are all welled up with tears and i said I get it. You didn't want to appear weak. He goes, no, no, no. I said, so can I ask you a question? He goes, sure. I said, so when you're making federal law, 
when you're making national policies, are you leaving love out of the reasoning? And then his eyes get really, really big. And he goes, and he runs over to them, right? Now, this is a guy who never meditated before in his life. I'm, you know, this experience was new for him, obviously, from what he was saying. But you can only imagine that this not being in touch with this core aspect, which feels like it's a thread of the tapestry of reality, that love is this vital force, that if people in positions of power, like a parliamentarian in a country, you know, think love is weak, you know, then we're in trouble. <laughs> you know, we're in deep trouble. So the idea then of, you know, in this case, it's the wheel of awareness, but even just the concept that, you know, we can actually tap into this deeper source of awareness that has love at its core. I'm very hopeful that we can actually turn this around in time. I know we have a very brief window of time, mm -hmm. probably less than a decade. Mm -hmm. And so there's an urgency to this. But while there's an urgency to it, it's an ancient message that somehow modern culture has ignored. So my deepest hope is that adding a little bit of the science to say, hey, you know, this is the problem. And maybe as a physician, I say, look, if someone comes in to me and has pain in the bottom of their foot and they're limping and I go, what's going on? They go, I don't know. I have a pain in the bottom of my foot. I'm limping. I say, here, come, come here. Let me take off your shoe. Let me take off your sock. Let me look at the sole of your feet and let me, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's a splinter. Will you let me take the splinter out? Oh, there's a splinter. Yeah. Take the splinter out. And now they walk straight. Their back isn't hurting anymore. The pain is gone. We have a splinter in modern culture, in the soul of society, that is the separate self. And my deepest hope is that this conversation about interconnectedness and we, you know, this me plus we, is you don't have to get rid of the individual. You don't have to, you don't have to crash in a traffic intersection. You could say, I have an individual body. Uh, that's good. That's a me. And we add it, we integrate it with we, and you make the we word, or however we're going to say that in different languages. And then we has a way to liberate you from the lie of the separate self and allows us to actually find a new way to go to the great turning. This movement that Joanna Macy would say is away from the great unraveling and can let us to go away from business as usual. And I think everyone's going to be better for it. Yeah. 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 And the Boy, country you sure state that beautifully, Dan, just so beautifully, absolutely beautifully. The contribution of awareness of meaningful coincidences mm -hmm. is that the primary kind of meaningful coincidence is mind thinking of something, imagining something. It happens in the environment and it begins to show us in individual daily life that mind and environment are connected, that we are not separate from each other. We are not separate from our surroundings. Being able to like sing a song, which I was singing along a river yeah, the other day. And uh, I like 50 songs and I was hitting like a low note, 10, tenor low note. And right then I hear a harmonic, very much like the note I am singing. And I said, hey, it's joining me <laughs> in this song. And it was, it turned out to be a, a truck going across the river, the river I was mm -hmm. nearby. But the experience of having the external join 
what appeared to be the internal is the sort of thing that for some of us is a slow but persistent daily reminder of mind being connected with environment. The basic message of which is we have to dissolve our reliance on the belief of a separate self. And then what do we have left? And so the message from, from you, Dan, particularly, and I think Chris too, is how do we help people recognize their inter and intraconnectedness so they can find the love that's all around us. There's love all around, but I never heard it singing. No, I mean, there's a love all there. And it's so much fun to be in it and all its many variations. I, one of the troubles I've been having is there's so many different kinds of love that we can experience, a, a gradient of them. And it's fun to try to do various of them. So being able to get out there and connect. Dan, would you, would you separate out for this listener here, me, interconnected versus intraconnected? Sure. Well, the, the origin of that word, uh, I, you know, I was working with these system scientists at MIT, and we, um, we went on a retreat together to deepen our experiential sense of, of systems. So uh, we were up in the Colorado mountains with John P. Milton at the Way of Nature. And part of that retreat process is to go for three days um, by your individual selves in the forest. So, you know, we had our experience and we came out after the three days and we're together and everyone was saying these beautiful experiences they had of being interconnected with the forest, of being interlaced with the forest, interwoven. They used Thich Nhat Hanh's beautiful term, interbeing. And then it came time for me in the circle to speak. And I'm, I'm kind of a particular person for the meaning of words. And I said, you know, I resonate with everything you're saying, everybody, but the experience for this body was not so much a betweenness, it was like a withinness. I mean, I was the creek, I was the tree, I was the sky, I was the body called Dan. There was a withinness to it. I, 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 I don't know, I couldn't say interconnected because there wasn't a separation of me connected to that. So I guess I would say interconnected and everyone's like nodding, fine, fine. We went back to the, you know, the place we were staying and back to technology. I turned on my computer. I want to take some notes on the three-day experience. And I kept on writing. Well, you know, I was interconnected. And the word processor, autocorrect, kept on changing it back to interconnected. So I said, what's wrong with my computer? And then I looked it up. There is no such word as intraconnected, you know, connectedness of within. And, and so I just had the feeling that, you know, if we don't have a word, to speak from the perspective and, and speak on behalf of in terms of agency or even the subjective feeling of the whole, then we've got a problem, in, at least in English. But it turns out there really isn't a word like that in many other languages. Um, so, so then I thought, you know, I need to write some kind of appeal to our human family that modern culture, at least in, in the way we experience it now, you know, has created this experience where the self is only separate. So that would be interconnected. Interconnected means, you know, the three of us are here and there's connections between us. That's the inter and there's connections and that's beautiful too. So it's, it's better to have interconnection than no connection, but yes. we need to take it one step further yeah. to realize we can speak on behalf of the experience of the whole, yeah. the whole forest, and the what whole I, life and on what, earth. 
what I get from just your riff there is uh, I like going from intra to inter. I like the connection and the separate. It's all I'm part of it. It's part of me. And then I get to experience myself as somewhat separate, but still connected. Exactly. And that's exactly, Bernie, the idea of integration is you have a me and a body and no one is saying get rid of it. Uh, and then you have a we and a relationality. So there's an inner and an inter. And when you put the inner and the inter together, it's the intra, right? So, so that's a way of just wording it. And what was fun about writing the book is, you know, to, to take the reader on a kind of journey together, looking at lifespan development. So looking at the science of self and how it develops, you know, in utero, in, in infancy, in toddlerhood, in, in the early years of school, in adolescence, in adulthood, what's the resistance to change, and really trying to review, not in an academic way, but just in a useful way, like what is practical about what science has said. So it was like a mm -hmm. synthesis of a whole bunch of science in a very short way to say, here's what happens across a lifespan in modern culture to actually be developing the false view of a noun-like separate self-entity. Mm. And then here are the opportunities to actually open that up, not getting rid of the individual, yeah. but realizing you are inner, you are inter, and you are the wholeness of it all, the intra. Yeah. Chris? Uh, just beautiful again. This has been, of course, the the ancient message of the spiritual traditions, and now the scientific voice you're saying is joining that chorus with its own particular epistemology. But the core message is the finite self is a limited self. It's not an ultimate self. It's a functional self. The contextual self, or as the Buddha saw in his night of awakening, he awoken and saw a self not anywhere in the world, not in him, not in anyone else, and in anything else. And one, when one enters this deeply into transparency, as you say, interconnected is just too small for it. Intraconnected, it's it's a wholeness of life where. The, the beginning and ending of my life dissolves completely in the beginning and ending of all other lives. And one lost in, or not lost, are dissolved into the, the communion of life in its totality functioning in its beautiful individuality and yet incredibly complex and balanced harmony in community to experience that if we can stabilize that experience, if we can tap into that experience and generalize that experience and make it part of our living culture, then we really have a foundation for a very different culture on this planet. And I, I, I'm so encouraged by your description, Dan. Uh, and I also think that this is happening at a kind of a, another level where I think all of our former lives, which live within us in various ways, just we carry the history of the planet in our soul. We've been every race, we've been every religion, we've been every variation. And as the planet is coming into this cataclysmic process of compression, uh, we are psychically coming into this inner process of compression. And I think that this uh, transition into a quantum sense of self, a quantum a sense of wholeness, a quantum entanglement. And, and I love that, that word from, you know, Dean Radin in his book, Entangled Mind. Um, 
I think we're coming into a compression point in history where it's just like extinction is an evolutionary driver and it's a very powerful. I think you're right that the ego, this is a civilization, a culture that's been built on the, the ego and which is a beautiful structure, but it's, it's a, it's an imprisoned self and it leads, it builds a divided world. And we don't have the luxury of a planet any longer being guided by an egoic civilization, even a well-intentioned egoic civilization, we need to give birth to a higher, more inclusive form of human identity, which I, I think this inclusiveness that you're pointing to, Dan, also correlates with an escalated intensity of a center integration, so that what I call the diamond soul is, an, is a, a summation individuality, but it also is because it's very nature, it's also a, a transparent individuality. It's open to the field. It, it lives in constant uh, feedback with the field. Uh, it's, I don't have any, the faster we move through this crisis, the better, the more we all begin to understand what's happening and, and align ourselves with becoming the kind of being that history needs us to be at all those levels, uh, then the fewer children have to die, the fewer grandchildren will have to die. Uh, I guess I, I see this price of this crisis deepening for decades, not on the basis of psychedelic visionary, not, uh, not at all, but just in terms of what the environmentalists are telling us and the, the crisis that they seem kind of coming at us. Uh, but I do think, I do think it is about releasing something splendid in the human heart. It's about actualizing our divine potential in a higher order, a higher register, same divine being, same cosmic nature, but actualized into a higher self-expression. And I just am so, in, I take such strength in your description, Dan, it's really, uh, I feel such deep resonance with it. Yeah, it's a real well. Well, good. I thought you might, Chris. <laughs> I thought you might, and you have, uh, and you do. And I, I'm just uh, like looking at my next dance step. You know, I kind of, I, I mean, I can be fairly academic. Uh, I've done it that that a long time. But uh, the next dance step I see is somehow being able to facilitate not only the recognition, but the experience of the self as being part of something greater. It's not just this me. It's, it's me. And it's me with others it's me with nature it's me with this whole planet it's with me with gaia i am part of it and you are part of it and we are all part of it and have that experience and i like the differentiations that come out with doing that that there's some there's 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 centers of intraconnectedness. A family is a center of a, of a mind that of which each person is a part, for example, or a group. And again, it dances where I get to experience that sometime. So what we're, as we come to the end of this, uh, I, I really, I'm, whether you guys like it or not, I don't see this as just the end of anything here. I think it's a beginning here. We've got, and it's been going on for a while anyway, but here we are, the three of us talking about this, and we've got to dissolve the self, at least temporarily, to be able to like uh, modulate that it's just me thing, which is defensive right now. I mean, people are doing it now being scared. There's a lot of reasons to do that. I, 
and you've described very well, I don't have to try to do that, but our mission, each of us in our own way, I think, is to be able to help that singular singular identity of self as separate from everything else begin to have an oscillation between self and environment. And I think that's what we're doing. I think that's a, a mission we're all on in some way or other in our own ways with our own songs and with our own dance and our own people and our own way of doing it. And each of you have... Uh, that is what you're doing and i i'm so glad that we've been able to at least get a touch of it so i i thank each of you for for joining me in this discussion clarifying something i kind of knew but making it clear for people who are listening to us that this singular ego thing has to be replaced with something a little more broad but still the integration is part of the vacillation so I'm gonna we'll end this with each of you having some closing comment, and um, then we'll we'll stop. So, Dan. Oh, it's beautiful to be here with you, Chris and and Bernie. As you know, it's it's um, it, it's a moment in our human evolution when I think if we realize that a process that is really established called cultural evolution. Yeah. It's very real. And everyone can have uh, participation in something called pervasive leadership, where every individual can take whatever role fits with your life to find a way uh, to sense into a, a self that, yes, is inside, that's the inner, Yes, that's connected to other people and to nature, yes. But that also, besides inner and inter, is intra. And this is the me plus we is we, you know, term. And what, what I invite everyone listening to just consider is that cultural evolution happens by one person, one relationship, one conversation at a time. People often quote Margaret Mead, the anthropologist, as saying, you know, don't ever think that a small group of people can't change the world because indeed that's the only thing that ever has. So if we can just have that pervasive leadership now, you know, with the grounding in uh, indigenous wisdom and contemplative teachings from thousands of years and with the additional, you know, support of modern views from science, you know, we actually can take the steps we need in the time we can do it. Mm. So the issue is not whether we can or can't, because we can. This cultural evolution can happen very rapidly. The bigger question is, will we? And we will, because we have to. Well, that's, I'm with you. That's a big driver. That's yeah. a big driver. Keep those grandchildren around uh, being able to do their thing that's because we're we're part of trying to make that happen uh chris well dan i would just underscore everything you just said and uh put my initials right beside it because i certainly believe everything you've said uh one of the things that was shown me along the way was uh, you talked about fields and quantum fields and and part of my experience was at one point that the intensity of the global crisis we're coming into is going to hyper stimulate 
not yeah. only our individual fields, but the collective field of yeah. humanity. So, yeah, it's so, so it's going to drive it into nonlinear conditions. Oh. We know something about how physical fields behave in nonlinear conditions, chaos theory. Mm. Now, if we make the assumption that the psychic field of humanity under nonlinear behavior, far from equilibrium conditions, will have some of those same qualities, then we have a way of looking at emergence coming out of the depths of the human psyche, new, the, the emergence of new forms, crystallizations of, that weren't even available previously, but represent an actualization of latent uh, capacities within human nature. So that feels deeply aligned with what you're talking about. And it helps us understand how we can make us big a change as we need to make in as short a time as we have, because in, in the instability of, of, a, of a, when we come to trick, uh, trigger points, bifurcation systems, of course, very susceptible to small perturbations so that the influence of individuals increases the more we move into a period of crisis. That gives added weight to each one of our effects on the outcome. And uh, yeah, that's, and I just, I just really support what you're saying. Yeah, that's really good. <laughs> really good. So hopefully those listening to this and watching us uh, will be part of uh, joining us in trying to be able to facilitate the intra connection that's also interconnected and also about us individually. So thank you both for joining me today. <clears throat> it's been a great discussion. Thank you, Bernie. Thank you for getting us together. You're Thank welcome. you, Bernie. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be with you all. And this is a, it's an exciting moment and we can do this. Yes. This psychosphere is our mental atmosphere like a hologram of cosmic consciousness